Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Hong Kong chaos, a second day of flight cancellations amid the airport protests. Singapore's slowdown, growth forecast there slashed as trade tensions bite and an Argentine ambush. Investors prepare for another session of volatility as the political shockwaves continue. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. to first move once again. Great to have you with us. I'm calling it now the August of angst for investors right now. Wherever you look, it seems we've got protests, we've got escalating political risk. When you combine that with summer markets, less investors, the result is volatility. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing right now for US markets. Pre-market, we are tilted to the downside once again. That after losses in yesterday's session two, the Dow falling some one and a half percent. The S&P and the Nasdaq, the tech stocks falling some 1.2 percent. Once again, stock markets really feel like they're watching the bond market action here. The message, higher bond prices, therefore lower yields, means weaker growth ahead. And that's the fear. We continue to look at safe havens too. Gold, the Japanese yen, bonds. The question is, at what point here perhaps do stocks look oversold and bonds look overbought? Hey, perhaps it's an early question, but then this is first move. Right now, we've got the 10-year uh, bond yields ticking a bit higher. We're sitting at 1.65% longer term bond yields, though, under real pressure. We're approaching all-time lows in that 30-year. Similar story in Europe, too. Bond yields lower, stocks lower as well. Germany Look at the German stock market, the underperformer here. Investor confidence there hitting an eight-year low. Not a good sign, of course, as we await those growth numbers from Germany tomorrow. What about Asia? Chinese stocks fell overnight. But again, the underperformer here, the Hang Seng, falling more than 2% today, now fully wiping out year-to-date gains. Investors, I think, just grappling, trying to gauge the economic and the political implications of the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. And that is where we're going to kick off the drivers. So let's get to it. A fifth straight day of protests at the international airport. Flight suspended too for a second day. The Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam saying the city is, quote, on the brink of no return. Paula Hancocks is at the airport for us. Paula, talk us through what we're seeing. I heard you earlier on CNN talking about an individual, a suspected infiltrator of the protests, a member of the police force. What's going on right now? Because clearly everybody very, very nervous. Well, Julia, that individual, as far as we can tell, we can just see off to the distance, is still effectively being held by protesters. There's a, a trial by protester going on at this point. This, this really does show, though, the, the frustrations and the anger that the protesters here are feeling against police and against the undercover police that they say have been working amongst the protesters. So they believe they have found one of these undercover police. We, we have no way of knowing whether or not he is. But just the very fact that for, for well over an hour now, uh, they have been uh, holding him amongst dozens of protesters. They've been questioning him. Uh, it really does show that, that this is one of the things that does concern these protesters. Yes, they are here for a fifth day at Hong Kong International Airport because uh, of the extradition bill to China. They want that to be cancelled. They have a number of demands. But this is all 
also about showing anger against the police, about what many protesters here believe is excessive violence that has been used by the police, in particular uh, on Sunday. So this is really why we're seeing quite so many people here, thousands of people here uh, at the airport. The numbers uh, don't appear to be thinning out too much, maybe a little bit, uh, but certainly we are seeing the, uh, the, the anger uh, directed specifically towards police. Julia? Absolutely, Paula. And to your point, the protesters have been saying now for, for many days that they want an investigation into apparent police brutality in handling protesters. They also want the extradition bill, the place where this originally started, to be formally withdrawn and taken off the table. Again, journalists last night asking Carrie Lam to do that. And she refused once again. What do protesters think here? Are they going to wait for that? Do they, do they want to just sit here and continue and, and try and hope that, that the executive here backs down? Julia, with no concessions coming from, from Chief Executive Carrie Lam, as you said today in that, in that press conference, she was uh, quite resolute. She was uh, defending the police action, saying that it was necessary to try and keep the peace uh, in Hong Kong without any kind of concession from the Hong Kong government. It's, it's very difficult to see where the off-ramp is when it comes to these protests. They are not losing steam. The momentum uh, is continuing, if not building. The very fact that this is the fifth day of the Hong Hong Kong International Airport. It's the second day as well that they've actually managed to, to cause severe disruption. Uh, they have actually managed to, uh, to cancel flights coming out of here. We are uh, still seeing, though, you can probably see behind me the, uh, uh, the, the board with a lot of red cancelled on it. Uh, all those uh, departures uh, have, uh, have been cancelled. There are a lot of protesters, of course, but also some very confused passengers wandering around uh, with their luggage trying to figure out if they are going to be able to fly out of here tonight and, and the overwhelming answer is is no because uh, we've been told by the Hong Kong authorities uh, here at the airport that, uh, that there is no more check-in now that has been suspended but but the fact is the momentum is still here the protesters do not believe that they have what they set out uh, to get and they are even more angry now because they believe that the police is using more force and what they see as excessive force against unarmed protesters. Julia? Yeah, to your point, where's the off-ramp here? It's tough to see. Paula Hancock, thank you so much for that. And we'll be back over to Hong Kong to get the latest there in the show now. Let's move on. Recession risks in Singapore. The city-state slashing its growth forecast for 2019. John Defterius joins us now. John, an incredibly weak second quarter for Singapore, yes. but it doesn't get more bellwether than this. Two largest trade partners, the United States and China, they are well and truly caught in the crossfire here of a far bigger trade war. And you, as you suggest, uh, Julia, Singapore is a, a great global barometer because it's so uh, export dependent. And uh, basically the crystal ball in the near future, in a word, is cloudy. Let's bring up the actual numbers. Uh, this is the worst growth in a decade, going back to the financial crisis. Uh, the latest quarter with a contraction of 3.3 percent. And equally alarming, the forecast for all of 2019 was ratcheted down uh, by the government of Singapore by one and a half percent. We're looking at zero to one percent.
for the entire year. A technical recession is uh, on the cards, according to a number of different global economists who cover Singapore because of a contraction in the third quarter as well. And the Ministry of Trade, very interestingly, was not shy about the reasons behind uh, the sell-off that we've seen in the financial markets today and the outlook going forward. Uh, regionally, they suggested that the disruption we see in Hong Kong right now can spill over to the rest of the region. Ironic because it's the number one competitor, as you know, of Singapore uh, as a trade hub and as a financial services hub. Uh, number two, something that's overlooked very often is the simmering dispute between Korea and Japan, which right. has hit supply chains throughout the region. And as you suggested, the big elephant in the room is the US and China, number one, number two global economies. And they even mentioned the Brexit concerns, saying this could spill into the third quarter because we don't have a resolution on the actual hard exit uh, of the into the European Union uh, by the UK. So if you look down the pipeline, Julia, plenty to worry about. And most of that's coming from Asia with Donald Trump hammering away at China with the tariffs. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to your point, electronics at the heart of this as well. And we know the supply chains here for, for Singapore is so critical. The currency, the Singapore dollar relative to the US dollar also sitting at two year lows. And that's part of a bigger story here as well. We've seen China's currency weakening. More broadly, you try and see some currency weakness making your exports cheaper and offsetting that. But when lots of central banks in the region are cutting, lots of currencies are weakening, you just don't get the bang for the buck here that you'd hope for. Well, your phrase uh, about the August angst that you talked about at the top of your program today, I think is uh, apropos here because you have to raise the question, uh, what is the response by the central banks, not only in Asia, but globally? We've seen in the last week, New Zealand, India and Thailand cutting interest rates. We don't see an emergency meeting coming from the Central Bank of Singapore. Uh, that's slated for October, but they're expected to ease. And over the last week, uh, in the annual address to the nation, Prime Minister Lee of Singapore said that they're ready to provide stimulus going forward. You notice that the U.S. Federal Reserve has cut interest rates as well. One thing that uh, stood out for me is the Bank of America recent survey. Uh, at the highest level since 2011, we have a third of fund managers suggesting the risk of global recession as at the highest level since 2011. So it's starting to look rather dark. And the worst thing about all of this, Julia, the three main items that I listed there, my first answer, Hong Kong, the dispute between South Korea, Japan and U.S., China, no one's blinking right now. So resolution perhaps is not in the pipeline and why we see the downgrades here coming from Singapore today. It's such a great point, John. The U.S.-China trades back, not the only one, and it's clearly having mm. regional implications too, never mind anything else. John Devterius, thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to move on to Latin America now and fears of another Argentinian default. The Argentinian peso and the stock market plummeting yesterday. It follows the Argentine president's shock defeat in Sunday's primary elections. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, and obviously we're waiting for the market to open up around 10 a.m. Eastern time and poised for what action we see there. But just talk us through the price action yesterday and why. What has got investors so jittery as a result of what we saw at the weekend? Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, Julia, it was really a, a collective freak out. We saw precipitous falls in stocks, in bonds, in the currency. Everyone extremely worried after seeing the result of that primary election, which really is a kind of uh, poll ahead of the election, which happens uh, at the end of October. The uh, incumbent, Mauricio Macri, who's seen as very business friendly, he's the one who negotiated the loan, uh, the bailout with the IMF. He's been implementing austerity measures. He got just 32% of the vote compared to the uh, opposition leader, uh, Alberto Fernandez, who got 47% of the vote, much more than expected, and really uh, a rejection, it's seen, by, uh, by the people uh, of those austerity measures from Mauricio Macri that have led to a precipitous rise uh, in poverty and inflation uh, in, in, in Argentina. So everyone is extremely worried now that this raises the likelihood that Macri will not get re-election and then uh, raises the likelihood that uh, Argentina will default on its debt. If you look at the bond market, the, 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 the price action there suggests that people don't believe that Argentina will be able to pay off its debts. And, and Julia, this is not over. We've got a couple of months now uh, of uncertainty ahead of that vote, so I think much more volatility still to come. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? To your point, even if President Macri doesn't win the next election and there's big question marks over what economic policy follows, when you're talking about a huge plummet in your currency, that reduces your purchasing power. You've already got 50% inflation, never mind 10% unemployment. The economic costs here are huge, in addition to austerity measures as a result of an IMF program. It's kind of eye-watering for, for the economy here. Yeah, and I think, you know, we have to talk about the impact on, on people here. These austerity yeah. measures have uh, led to a growth in poverty. The, the peso lost about half of its value last year against the dollar. Another uh, fifth of its value was shaved off yesterday. That is going to increase inflation. The central bank rate is at 74%, Julia. If inflation keeps rising, they could have to tighten monetary policy even further. That will increase uh, the pressure on the population. And I think this raises serious questions about whether this IMF bailout is even working. The IMF, one of its state aims, it says, was to protect society's most vulnerable. I think looking at the economic situation in Argentina, you can seriously question whether or not that has actually worked. Oh, I'm glad you raised that so I didn't have to. I couldn't agree more. Have we not learned lessons? There'll certainly be questions asked. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right. Let's bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. One woman has died and another was wounded in a stabbing rampage in Sydney, Australia. The 21-year-old suspect filmed running through the streets with a knife in his blood-stained hands. Witnesses were able to hold him down until police arrived and arrested him. Officials say the suspect has no apparent link to any terrorism organisation. More details are emerging around the apparent suicide of Jeffrey Epstein, who died in prison while being held on sex trafficking charges. U.S. Attorney General William Barr said serious irregularities were found at the New York facility where Epstein was held. Employees say the incident highlights inadequate funding and staff shortages in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The Trump administration has unveiled new regulations that could cut legal immigration to the United States. The new rules say applicants can be turned down for a visa or a green card if they have limited education or if they're receiving government benefits. Critics are saying it's an attempt to turn away low-income immigrants and people of color. Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, great to have you with us. So just describe who exactly could be impacted by this, because my understanding is it doesn't include asylum seekers, it doesn't include refugees at this stage, but it does include people that are taking handouts from the state. Right. There are a lot of exceptions to this rule, and you mentioned a couple important ones, so-called asylees, 
people who are getting uh, the government's assistance because they are refugees. But there are many people that this rule does apply to. It's known as the public charge rule. It's been around a long time. The idea since the 1800s really picked up speed around 1996. But it's always been very limited in its application until now. A vast expansion by President Trump and his views on immigration. The rule's actually some 837 pages long. You can read the whole thing on CNN.com. But the bottom line on it is that if you come to the United States from another country with intent to stay after October 15th of this year and you need public assistance, you may not then be entitled to a green card. You may not be entitled to stay in the United States as a permanent resident. Of course, uh, the critics here in the United States are saying this is just one more application of President Trump's attempts to crack down on the immigration policies of the United States as we know them. And there are some concerns that even though this rule does not apply to people who were in the United States before that date certain of October 15th, there's a lot of fear that there could be a chilling effect and that people might not seek the benefits they need. The bottom line, a lot of people come to the United States with nothing more than the clothes on their back for one reason or another, with the hopes of building a life here. And of course, apparently the government is not going to help. You know, Joe, I can see both sides of this debate. I, I really can. I mean, the United States is a burgeoning deficit. You could make the argument that it simply can't afford to give decent medical cover, benefits to Americans who were born here, never mind anybody else. What's the net financial impact? Because there are those that would say, look, these are people coming into the United States that the United States needs if they do enter the workforce and they do jobs that ordinary Americans don't want to do. Can we gauge that at this stage? I think you make a very important point, and uh, throughout this immigration debate, there's been a real question about how much people who are illegally in the country actually contribute to the economy in terms of the taxes they pay, for example, because so many people don't want to get flagged by the Internal Revenue Service. So even if they are illegal in the United States, they still pay income taxes and they pay sales taxes and so on. So there's a question as to the value of uh, some of these individuals who might be excluded. And the other half of it, I think, that is very important when you talk about immigration is just because somebody comes here and for a brief period needs some help doesn't mean that they're going to need help always. A lot of these Americans become very productive members of society, but they do need to get on their feet, Julia. Yeah, fascinating. This conversation, no doubt, will continue. Joe Johns, thank you so much for joining us. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, grounded Hong Kong stock slide as protesters shut down the international airport. We'll take a look at the fallout for businesses in the Hong Kong economy and the long-awaited makeup after the breakup. More than 10 years after going their separate ways, Viacom and CBS are said to be close to a deal. But what does this mean for the industry? We'll discuss. Stay with us. You're with First Move.
Welcome back to First Move, where we are looking at a lower open once again for U.S. stock markets. The major averages are now on track for th their third day of losses, in fact, even as 10-year bond yields steady a little bit here. We've also had some inflation numbers from the United States. Consumer prices rising 0.3% in July. Core inflation rising 2.2% year over year. That's a six-month high, so one eye from the Federal Reserve on that. But slow growth remains the concern. As John mentioned earlier, a new Bank of America survey of global fund managers suggests recession risk at an eight-year high. One-third of investors surveyed see a global recession over the next 12 months. Let's get some context here. Jeff Kleintop is Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Jeff, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Is that recession risk concern among investors too high in your mind for the United States? No, I don't think so. I think when we look at indicators like the, uh, the leading indicators from the OECD or what we're hearing even from CFOs who are now, the majority of CFOs in the U.S. believe there will be a recession next year and they're pulling back on capital spending. I think as we look at things like the yield curve and other uh, cyclical indicators, they're all stating that we're probably seeing the highest risk of recession in many years. Right now it's concentrated in the manufacturing space. The consumer still looks pretty good and the service sector looks okay. The concern is now with all these other uh, developments uh, uh, around the world that that begins to spill over and weigh on the consumer and the service sector and pull them down into the recession already being experienced by manufacturing. You know, the counter to that would be, but the Federal Reserve is cutting rates. How valuable are rate cuts here? How are financial conditions? Because you kind of need to have tighter financial conditions to loosen them for red Fed rate cuts to work here. Is that a valid point? That's exactly right. This is this is not really the battle we're fighting. I mean, the, the Fed really has one superpower, and that is to loosen financial conditions. And often, it's those financial conditions that are tightening late in an economic cycle that are weighing on economic growth. As interest rates rise and it becomes more difficult to borrow, that is not the problem we're having right now in the U.S. That's certainly not the problem they're having in Germany, where interest rates have never been lower, yet their economy uh, is, is on the threshold of recession. So it's not an interest rate or financial conditions issue. It's about trade policy. Uh, it's about, again, this manufacturing slowdown tied to autos and many other factors. I think those are the issues we need to address, and they're more political ones than ones that can be directly addressed by the Fed. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough, challenging environment for investors, whichever way you look at it, whether it's political risk, whether it's economic risk right now. What happens if we see some kind of trade agreement? Does all the pent-up demand, the slowed business investment, that the real concern for the manufacturing sector here suddenly go away and then you've got a real kicker to the US economy and others? Because a lot of the issues that have held them on pause as far as investment is concerned go away. That may be the case, that we do see a, a fresh round of, of uh, business investment if we see some of these major trade concerns begin to fade. But, gosh, that just doesn't seem likely, maybe ahead of the 2020 elections. It's probably the least likely now than it's been any time in the last couple of years. So certainly that breakthrough would help, maybe give us another year of economic growth and market performance. I maybe would liken it to 1998, when there seemed to be uh, major problems around the world late in an economic cycle. They were alleviated for due to a number of things.
things. And we did get another year of growth or so. So that could kind of give us that last burst of growth before we uh, experience the downturn. But I note that already we're seeing a rise in inflation pressures that are classic in a late cycle environment. Businesses are already seeing their profit margins squeezed through higher labor costs at the same time revenues are headed down. So I think that that additional boost might be limited in its duration. You've always said, and you've said to me many times, look outside, diversify away from the United States, look at Europe. What do you make of what's going on in Italy right now? Because for most foreign investors, they just look at Europe, they go Brexit, they go political risk in Italy and go, yuck. What's your message? Right. <laughs> it looks like it's breaking apart. But, you know, right now it's interesting. So the, the League Party in Italy, which is now uh, uh, the major focus of concern, uh, do they, are, are they very anti-Euro and would they consider a, a a, a, a more uh, abrupt break with the rest of the eurozone but the truth is they're pulling at a 39 percent level of support versus the euro which is 71 percent support within italy and, and overall at the highest level of support within all of the eurozone so it doesn't Such appear the eurozone is set to break apart anytime soon and i think that's an important consideration yeah. as valuations are very low there and maybe an attractive opportunity I have to wrap you. Great work. Thank you so much, Jeff. We'll get you back very soon. More to come. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move this Tuesday and the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange. We are softer seeing losses at the open here for the U.S. markets, despite the smiling faces that you saw there. It's always nice to see that, even if we're seeing a bit of broader pressure here. It follows Monday's 1.5% pullback in the Dow. Investors also eyeing slightly hotter than expected read here on consumer prices. Core CPIs, it's called, coming in at six-month highs, as Jeff Plantop was just mentioning. That's something that the Federal Reserve needs to keep in mind here, too. It's not just about the majors, as we were discussing on the show yesterday small cap stocks here in the United States have also been hit pretty hard. The Russell 2000 remains in correction territory, down some 14% below recent highs, much worse than the S&P 500's performance. Remember, we're just some 5%, 5.5% away from record highs in the larger cap stocks. What about the US dollar? Well, the US dollar is also higher again versus the Chinese yuan, the PBOC guiding the currency lower once again today. A little bit stronger, though, than anticipated. Remember, a slow descent continues here for the uh, currency over in China. And what about in Asia as well? The Hang Seng falling more than 2% now and is in negative territory, down some 2.2%, I believe, for 2019. Real burden, the protests, of course, the economic costs yet to be quantified. What about our global movers? Let me walk you through some of these. Yum Brands, the owner of Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC, have named David Gibbs as their next CEO. Gibbs currently is COO and he'll take over at the end of the year. Tencent Music also in focus. The quarterly revenue missing estimates on slower than expected monthly average revenue growth per user. Right now under some pressure in the session. JD.com in focus. The Chinese e-commerce company posting better than expected quarterly revenues and forecast strong third quarter sales. We're also keeping an eye on Boeing in the session today as well. Sales numbers for the embattled playmaker will be out around 10 a.m. Eastern. The 737 MAX has been grounded since March, of course, following two fatal crashes. All right, we're also on media merger watch as well. The reunion of CBS and Viacom could be announced in the coming hours. That's according to uh, someone involved in the deed deal.
Atlas Gold is standing by on this story. 2006, I believe, was the official separation and what a battle it's been since then. And the landscape has changed dramatically. Talk to me about the structure of this deal and what the tie-up means for both of these players. Julia, yeah, it's pretty ironic considering that they used to be one company in 2006 and they were actually split up because the theory was that maybe Viacom would do better without CBS bringing it down when it when actually when you look at the results CBS has done so much better. This is the third attempt to bring these two companies back together and it seems like the third time might be the charm. As you noted, a senior executive involved has told CNN that the announcement could be coming sometime today, maybe later today. We're all just waiting, but it seems as though the details of this deal have been reported out by so many different places and what we're seeing is an all-stock merger at Values Viacom at a bit of a discount. Uh, but what the main thing here is bringing these two companies together is like we've seen in so many of these other media mergers is just how they can compete on this new scale we have with the Amazon and the Netflixes and and the Disney's all getting into the streaming world trying to bring these companies back together bring the content libraries all back together because between CBS and Viacom there's an interesting array everything from Comedy Central and BET on the Viacom side including Paramount Studios on the CBS side you have that news sports uh, and you can see right there on the screen what these sort of two companies coming together would all be. But what's interesting, Julia, is that even combined, this combined CBS Viacom company would be still be pretty small up against some of these bigger giants that they're dealing with. So the big question is what will they do next? This is not the last step in this merger. There is talk that they will then be trying to acquire some other smaller companies or possibly even try to sell themselves to an even bigger company. Yeah, it was quite fascinating. When it, this was originally talked about re-tying up again, it was who would then buy them? But there's been so much M&A in the sector. It's like no one actually would want to buy them. They now have yeah. to be the buyer. Who might they buy? That's the, that's the right, question. Julie. What are the assets available? Yeah, so you, Julia, right, that's like who would buy them now? Because think about it, if let's say an Apple wanted to buy one of these companies, why wouldn't they have done it already? Why would having this merged company make them any more attractive? So that's why the thinking is they might be trying to acquire a smaller company. There's talk of something, for example, like Discovery Scripts, which is smaller than the combined CBS Viacom, and some of their properties might align well with some of the CBS Viacom properties. And you think about things like home improvement shows or nature shows or something like that. So that is the thinking right now is that the that's the direction they're going to try to go in. But again, it's a really difficult landscape out there when you're going up against some of these tech companies that are valued at, what, a trillion dollars? A trillion dollars? And even the combined CBS Viacom company would be maybe valued around $35 billion. That's a big gulf between the two. Yeah, it's such a big point. I mean, I looked at the headline on Vox website and they said, add NCIS and The Daily Show and billions, not bad, and you get a company that's still not big enough to compete with the Netflix, the Apples and the Disneys of the world. And what we know right now as well is that the streaming wars are on, quite frankly, all of these making huge strides and we could add others to really shake up and change the way that consumers digest content. It's pivotal. It's also going to be quite complex, I think, for these guys to come up with their own version of this to compete, even if they bolt on other acquisitions. Am I, am I making sense here, Hadas? What do you think? No. You're definitely making sense. And listen, sure, in the short term, this merged CBS Viacom will give them some leverage in sort of carrier negotiations. But that's 
old fashioned now. I mean, there's a huge new landscape out here, and there is a question of what will 15 years from now look like for emerged CBS Viacom. And I do think that's why the chance of them being gobbled up by another bigger company, I think that is still out there. Even if they end up in the next five years or so acquiring a Discovery Scripts or something like that, I can totally see an Apple wanting to buy up CBS. Yeah. Fascinating. Heather Scold, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right. Coming up on the show, an exodus from Argentina. Investors selling out of bonds, stocks and the currency. We look ahead at the start of a Tuesday session in Buenos Aires. More volatility to come. Stay with us. We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move. Argentina's stock market opens in around 20 minutes from now, the day after the heaviest one-day share price rout most people have ever lived through. The Merville Index losing a shocking 39% on Monday after a primary election that hugely increased the chances of President Macri's government will be ousted in October. Joining me is Hans Humes, Chairman and CEO of Greylock Capital. He's also served as the co-chair of the Global Committee of Argentine Bondholders. Great to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me. Let's talk about the price action first and then we'll go into the explanation of what you think and what's going on. That's extreme volatility by anyone's measure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, on the, on the stock side, that was the second largest one-day loss in history in any uh, equity market. Um, but on the bond side, where we play, uh, we saw a good sort of 20% gap down in prices and it was followed up by a further sort of 10% fall today. So this the feeling is that most emerging market investors, either on the equity or the debt side, have been invested and probably overly invested in Argentina. So the technicals have been fierce with this primary result. You know, it's interesting, in light of what's going on in the rest of the world, and we talk about this a lot, $15 trillion worth of negative yields, you look at a, a nice high interest earning bond with a country that, hey, it's had its problems, but it's got an IMF program right now, and you think, okay, you know, it's tough, but they're gonna make it happen. And then you have a political shocker like this weekend. Why did this make such a difference? Well, um, Alberto Fernandez, who is the chief of staff of Nesta Kirchner and then Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, um, he ran with Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner as his VP candidate. And everybody in the markets remembers the hostility towards the free markets that those two administrations had. So after sort of at least the friendly rhetoric of the Macri administration, to get the sense that you're going to have the same kind of anti-market, anti-free market policies coming back in really shocked people. And most people thought that it would be close. Nobody predicted that it would be a 15% gap. And this was a primary, but to understand, my understanding is it was mandatory. So you, it, you really got a sense, a sort of referendum right. on the current policies of, of Macri, a 15 percentage point lead right. for the alternative. And suddenly everybody's going, this is a, a, a gap, quite frankly, that President Macri cannot close between now and the presidential elections in October. Yeah, Macri came out yesterday to say that he was going to have a much better result the next go around. But there is a big question. This is it's an unusual system. You've got the first primary where you have to get over a certain threshold, sort of like the Democratic debates, um, to go into the runoff election in October. And then if 
it's too close, you'll get uh, a runoff between the two first candidates. Um, but in this case, a 15% gap, it really begs the question whether Macri can pick up enough votes from others to close it. But we'll have to see. I mean, there's so much going on here as well. We've got 10% unemployment rate, 50% plus inflation right now, a, a, an IMF program that's creating further pressure on the real economy and obviously the sensitivities of being a country that's had so many IMF bailouts in the past and the sort of association with an IMF package for the people here. Right. It was very difficult for Macri to, to make this choice and to decide to do this. He clearly got investors on board international investors buying into the currencies, buying into the bond, buying into the stock market, and now it's all yeah, falling and, apart. And, and some would argue that he used the, the market access as a substitute for the actual reforms that the country right. needed. Um, but it's true, the anti-IMF rhetoric that Nestor Kirchner in particular employed when he, in his first administration, that carries through. And the whole, wholehearted embrace of the IMF you know, $56 billion program creates a, a real negative issue for Macri, not least of which that the, um, the austerity is not going to allow him to spend the way that he'd like to to win an election. But there's, you know, Macri's fighting some serious headwinds. He came in promising to fix all the problems, and clearly he hasn't. He's had some bad luck, but a lot of the damage has been self-inflicted. So the alternative here is Alberto Fernandez backed by something that we've seen in the past, which is Christina Kirshner, obviously. But I mean, the, the scandals that surrounded her, the corruption cries, that people are willing to go back to perhaps that and a puppet leader, perhaps, in Alberto Fernandez. I, did, I, you know, I don't think he'll be a puppet leader. Uh, it's funny, I so this engaged with him a bit when I was the co-chair of uh, the creditor committee. and. I mean, he's not a traditionally educated economist by any means, but he is pragmatic. And I think that there's some latitude that they'll have learned from the mistakes they made. Um, obviously, Christina is going to be whispering in his ear. Um, and you do have some of the issues. I mean, the, you hear rumors of Kichilov coming in to run the economy. Guillermo Nielsen may come back. Neither of whom will get a round of applause from any investors. Not market friendly. But, you know, the expectations are so low now. <laughs> there's a ton of room after two days of the results. There's a lot of room for, for some positive surprise. Having said that, Alberto Fernandez, the first thing he says is, I'm not going to default. The market sells off. That's not a great sign. What's the risk here that we go down a route that we've seen in recent history? greater capital controls, another debt default with a, a new government that goes, you know what, actually we can't abide by this IMF program and, you know, history well, repeats itself plenty of times in Argentina and we do have I, a default. I, I mentioned it yesterday, but if you refer, if you take a look at the 100-year bond that they issued and you go back to the actuarial tables, uh, what they tell you is that 100-year bond will restructure eight times. If they restructure again, it'll be the third in the last 20 years. So really, the market and I think the world has some PTSD. There's a lot of you know, post-traumatic stress that's yes. gone on with Argentina. It used to be that we get buffeted by this every 15 years, and now it's every two or three years. So it's not surprising the market is flinching the way it is. And the real economy gets battered and ordinary yes. Argentines get, right. Argentinians get, get, get buffed as well. Um, not a buying opportunity yet then? No, I 
when you see a market move like this, um, I thought Stay that away. It, no, I frankly think it's about, you know, if you don't mind trading it, it's not a bad time to stick in a bid. But it's a big question whether you're it's time to buy for a long term hold. I think the market will bounce. I mean, again, it, you can't get more of a, bad, how, a worse sentiment than you have right now. So it won't be that difficult to get some kind of retracement in the markets, but it's really unclear what the long-term opportunities are. We'll see when the market opens up. Hans Humes, fantastic to chat to you both in the short term and the longer term here. All right, let's move on. I'll give you a look at today's boardroom brief. The Financial Times says U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton believes the new British Prime Minister will take another look at Britain's position on China's Huawei. Before Boris Johnson took office, the UK disregarded U.S. advice when it allowed the Chinese firm to build some parts of its 5G telecom infrastructure. Washington says Huawei may be working to help the Chinese state spy on Western nations. Verizon Media is selling Tumblr to web service company Automatic. Verizon had originally inherited the social media platform in 2017 as part of its acquisition of Yahoo, which bought Tumblr for more than a billion dollars just six years ago. All right, let's move on. It's been a summer of extreme temperatures around the world, heat waves across the continent of Europe, extreme flooding in India, and parts of China enduring the worst rain in almost 60 years. Now, while scientists and governments try to figure out how to address climate change, architects in Malaysia are adapting their designs to warming environments. John Defterius reports. On this edition of the Global Energy Challenge, I'm in Malaysia to meet the architects building a better future. At Kuala Lumpur's center, one million residents. On the periphery, seven million others. Worldwide, more than a third of all energy is consumed by buildings and construction, an often overlooked fact. We were so busy in Malaysia building the nation that it never hit us that we needed to also look after the environment. 2009, when we launched Green Building Index, was the year when everyone realized there was another way to look at things. And it also helped the bottom line. Your cost of operation went totally down. Old energy elevated this city. Future success may be more grounded. In the shadow of the Petronas Towers, a bamboo structure by award-winning architect Alina Jamil. We meet at this month's Festival of Architecture. We are slowly moving towards making natural sustainable materials like bamboo to become a standard building material to be used in buildings, in housing, in tall buildings, in skyscrapers. Responding to the climate is very, very important in a hot and humid climate like Malaysia. And you see that in the architectural education. You see students designing sensitive buildings which responds to the climate, which makes a connection with the local culture and local lifestyle. The new generation might save the world. I have good hope that the new generation, they'll do the right thing. People have asked us, will green come and go as an architecture style? But green is not a style. Green is the right thing to do. More First Move, next.
welcome back to First Move, where I want to give you a quick look at what we're seeing for US markets at this moment, well and truly turned. Take a look at that. The Dow up some 1.4%. The Nasdaq, the tech-heavy sector, up some 1.8%. Why? Well, I can tell you that we've had an announcement from the US Treasury regarding those tariffs, the 10% tariffs on the additional $3 billion worth of goods that was set to hit come September 1st. Well, the US Treasury has announced that certain products are going to be removed from that tariff list based on health and safety aspects, but also the consumer-related products. And so now we're talking cell phones, laptop computers, video game consoles, certain toys, and footwear and clothing. Those tariffs will be delayed to December 15th. So that gives plenty more time, perhaps, for negotiations. And the US government here deciding to protect the US consumer, remember, the under pinning of the U.S. economy at least into December 15th. Investors liking what they're hearing there and as a result stock markets have turned. Makes sense. Real sensitivity right now to the broader trade concerns. A delay though for consumer facing products on tariffed goods to December 1st. All right. I want to take you back now to Hong Kong and the protests at the international airport there. We were discussing it earlier on in the show. Paula Hancocks joins us once again. Paula, what's your sense? Are people deciding to wrap up for the evening? Clearly it's pretty late there, or are they bedding down for, for the evening? to have lost any of its momentum. There are still, I would say, thousands of uh, protesters here at the International Airport. You've also got protesters now trying to uh, uh, cover some of the security cameras to massive cheers from everybody else. So it really doesn't feel uh, like it is calming down in uh, in any sense. Uh, but as, you, as I said earlier, most of the, the flights have been cancelled. Uh, we see on the board behind me that uh, there's an awful lot of red there and there are still some passengers the terminal looking a bit confused and not quite sure uh, where exactly they're supposed to go but certainly uh, it's not expected that there will be many if any flights coming out of here uh, anytime soon uh, so certainly this is the second day it is going to have an impact on the airport it's going to have an impact on hong kong's uh, cathay pacific inevitably we heard from the hong kong transportation chief uh, saying that it's very easy to lose a reputation it's much harder to try and build one back up so really trying to appeal to the protesters not to continue this because of course the longer it goes the more damage it could do financially yeah i'm just looking at those pictures as well behind you There's certainly are plenty of people there and as you point out no intention of leaving right now paula hancocks thank you so much for joining us and obviously plenty more coverage from hong kong coming up later in programming for now though you've been watching first move time to go make yours I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.